Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. When I'm in trial, the days that I am more exhausted than any other days are the days that I am picking a jury. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It, it takes more energy, more thought, more concern, more worry, more stress, anxiety, any word you want to use, but yeah. it's tough. And yet, by far, voir dire is my favorite part of the case. Right, I, right. I so enjoy it because you get a chance to be there face-to-face, eye-to-eye with the jurors and chat with them about issues. And now, your hosts, Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Please rise. Court is now in session. Well, welcome, everybody, to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, as always, I am uh, your host Steve Lowry and along with me is my always happy and cheerful co-host Yvonne Godfrey and I know I know one of these times Yvonne I'm gonna I'm gonna run out of uh you know adjectives (laughs) to uh use for you but uh but I got a long list so we'll we'll go for a while when you're always using the nice compliments first so right right it's gonna be worse when you run out of the nice things to say and then you can just go to the mean ones (laughs) right right right, exactly that'll be at show number you know 55 or something like that yeah yeah um, well, uh, Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I am great. I am, um, I'm very excited about our guest uh, that we have on today and uh, for the case that we're talking about. Um, so let me first just interview, uh, introduce our guest. Uh, we are speaking to John Romano, who is a uh, partner, senior partner at the Romano Law Group. Uh, and his website is www.romanolawgroup.com. Uh, and John uh, has uh, just had a ton of experience with trials, is a fantastic trial lawyer. And I'm going to go through some of your accomplishments, John, and hopefully this won't take up the whole podcast, but it, there's a lot of them. Um, <laughs> okay, okay, I'm always willing to listen. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, so, so John, what, uh, you are a board-certified uh, trial lawyer or trial advocate uh, by both the Florida Bar and the National Board of Trial Advocates. You were the president of the Academy of Florida Trial Lawyers and the Southern Trial Lawyers, which is a fantastic group. Uh, John has written three books. He's written a book called Strategic Use of Circumstantial Evidence, uh, the Deposition Field Manual, and Opening Statements. And he is also the editor and, and chapter author for uh, uh, The Anatomy of a Personal Injury Lawsuit. In 1997, John was awarded the Perry Nichols Award, which is the highest honor of the uh, Academy of Florida Trial Lawyers, and uh, in 2004, he was given the War Horse Award by the Southern Trial Lawyers Association, which is a, a fantastic honor, and the, uh, the list of lawyers on it, uh, for the War Horse Award is, uh, is uh, just all the legendary um, trial lawyers, so to be included on that list is, I'm sure, a great honor to you, John, and uh, John has tried just about uh, every type of case uh, that you can think of has gotten uh, numerous multi-million dollar verdicts and uh, is just a fantastic trial lawyer uh, based out of Palm Beach in West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, John, before you were a, a lawyer, or maybe as you were a lawyer, you were a captain in the U.S. Marines. and, uh, and That's I, right. Yes, I was. And you, uh, you have four sons and 11 grandchildren. So that's fantastic. Yes, and they keep they keep my wife Nancy and I hopping. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure the sons are the are the grandchildren. <laughs> uh, both. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Both. 
<laughs> well, and I know, John, you practice law with, is it with two of your sons or is it uh, with three of your sons? Yes, with two of my sons, uh, Eric and Todd. Each, each one is a lawyer and uh, Todd does exclusively personal injury wrongful death cases. And Eric does uh, about 50% of his practice is personal injury and the other half is criminal defense. Uh, he had been a prosecutor and always wanted to stay involved with the criminal justice system. And so that's what he does. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, we are we are so honored to have you on here and really appreciate it. And uh, we're excited to talk about this case that you tried uh, back in October of 2012 in Brevard County. Uh, the name of the case was uh, Adams versus Impor Imported Car Store Inc., Dingman Group Inc., and Jason Neal. And uh, I'm going to give just a, a short introduction, John, and then where I've messed up, you can, uh, you can correct me and tell me uh, what, what I've gotten wrong. Um, it looks like back in 2005, uh, Sean was a witness to an uh, auto collision, a, a, a fairly minor auto collision, it seemed like, uh, between an elderly lady and then a man named Jason Neal, who is the general sales manager of a, 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 a car dealership called Imported Car Store. Uh, Inc. And um, after the collision, uh, Sean decides to uh, pull over and stop in to call 911, make sure that uh, help gets there, make sure that nobody's hurt, that type of thing. Uh, they, this collision happened right in front of the imported car store um, uh, place, and Jason Neal was on his way to, to the office at the time. And for some reason, and this is one thing that, that I, I'm definitely interested to talk to you about, it's Jason Neal uh, gets extremely hostile and, um, and basically starts telling everybody to get off the property. And then it uh, just seems out of the blue, uh, headbutts uh, Mr. Adams, knocks him unconscious so that when, his, uh, when he falls, his head hits the ground again. And Mr. Adams uh, was... Uh, brain damage severely, and he also suffered a, um, another injury called dystonia, which uh, before this case, John, I had never heard of. Uh, and Mr. Adams um, had, uh, was married and was uh, married with three children, and, um, and he was severely injured because of this. And the result of this, and we'll talk about this, the result was a $28.5 million verdict and we'll talk about how that was broken down and, and how you proved the case. But uh, how'd I do, John? <laughs> no, you, you did great. It, uh, the, the thing that really uh, caught my attention in the case is that right out in front of the dealership where this, uh, the assistant sales manager worked is where this very minor fender bender accident occurs. And our client, Sean, was an eyewitness, but it appeared as though when the uh, sales manager hit this lady's car and there was not any property damage to either car, he got out of his car, stood up, looked around, get back in his car and drove away. And at least it appeared to the people at the time as though this was a guy involved in a hit and run, leaving the scene of an accident. Okay. So Sean went in another direction and went into the parking lot of the dealership, not knowing it was the dealership lot where this guy was the assistant sales manager. And the elderly woman 
who Sean had who uh, had been struck by this guy's car. She pulls in. So she gets out of her car, is on her cell phone, distraught, a nervous wreck, crying. And Sean comes walking up to her and says, ma'am, it's all right. My name's Sean. I saw everything. I will be a witness for you. She hands him the cell phone and says, this is 911. Will you talk to them, please? He gets on the phone. As soon as he starts talking, up to his left, he hears somebody start screaming at him. And the words I cannot use on this podcast, but it was the worst of the words. In fact, one of the nicer words was the dropping of a series of F-bombs. The other words were worse. And then suddenly, uh, after the guy basically threatens them, he comes briskly walking down uh, an inclined walkway, grabs Sean by the shoulders, and in a massive way, violently headbutts him. According to two eyewitnesses, Sean then, his eyes roll into the back of his head, he goes down backwards, hits his head on the concrete, and one of the witnesses described it at trial, saying the sound of his head hitting the concrete reminded her of a coconut hitting a sidewalk. And the, the key here, because it would have otherwise all been contested as to what was said, etc., it was all recorded on the 911 tape, which was a tape we played in opening statement and we put into evidence. And what the case was about was how do we hold the dealership responsible for these activities of an assistant manager? Right. And uh, that was the gist of the case. But um, it, it was unique, and, and the defense position right from the get-go and all the way through was, number one, the dealership didn't do anything wrong, and we're not responsible for whatever the assistant manager did. And then number two, even if the guy did headbutt him, he really didn't have a brain injury, and if he did, it wasn't very serious. And right. those were contested issues. So, yeah, it, one of the things that, uh, you know, the first thing that I noticed about this case was, you know, that it seems like, and, and this is just from an outsider's point of view, that the case against the dealership might be a difficult case because, uh, you know, there's going to be an argument that he wasn't within the course and scope. And we practice up here in Georgia. So, we, you know, um, if, you know, there's some law out there that if you're on your way to work, uh, you know, unless it's something you're being sent from one job to another, uh, you're not normally within the course and scope. Um, but so, yeah, I, I thought that was going to be the really tough and it sounds like yeah. it was the main issue. Well, it sounds, Steve, like your law on that issue anyway is similar to what we have in Florida. However, in Florida, we, we have a case law that says if the headbutter was doing anything in furtherance of the business of the dealership, then the dealership is responsible for his actions. And at one point when, when the, uh, the, the headbutter was screaming and threatening uh, the elderly woman and our client, Sean, he said, get your, uh, and then he gave a wildly uh, 
curse word loaded description <laughs> of the elderly woman's vehicle and Sean's vehicle and said, get them off my lot. Now, right then, he is now making a statement. We said, as an employee of the dealership, saying, get your vehicles off our lot, you're trespassers. He never used the word trespasser, by the way. I'm using that now. Right. But when, the, when we took the deposition of the owner of the dealership, he actually said, I'm, I hope you all are sitting down. This is hard to believe. He said, Sean Adams was a trespasser. And yeah. I just couldn't believe it. And I think part of why we got such a wonderful verdict was the anger of the jurors. Here's a, a good Samaritan trying to help out, trying to help out an elderly woman, and the dealership owner calls him a trespasser. Yes, um, I saw and that, that helped us. Yeah, I saw yeah. that, and when I saw you, and then I, I read both your uh, closing and the defense lawyer's closing, and I, I saw you use that word a lot, and I saw the defense lawyer run from that word uh, as fast as yes. he could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that they did. That right. they did. Right. And uh, and I, I mean, it was it was just a fascinating case. Um, one thing that happened near the end was we we were on Friday, and I knew we were about to go into the next week. And I just I almost I, I guess you would say I was begging the judge, please don't go next week. Let's do summations on Saturday. Yeah. And the judge ultimately said fine. We did summations on Saturday and it was later that Saturday night when the jury came back when it, with its verdict. Wow. wow. That is, uh, I mean, that's just fantastic work. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I saw in there, and I didn't know if this, if you used uh, for your you know, argument that he was uh, within the course and scope of his employment, was it, I guess, was it the general manager or, or his uh, supervisor who it, had invited them onto the lot in the first place, and then he tells them to get off? Is it, was that something like that? No, no. no. What, ha what happened was the elderly woman saw if, um, where the dealership was and knew she wanted to just get her vehicle off the road. So she pulls into the dealership parking lot. What happened was this assistant uh, manager who, who uh, did the headbutting, he actually leaves the scene, goes into the dealership, gets out of his car, and goes running indoors. And then Sean sees that. Sean pulls up and is going to call the police himself, but he doesn't need to because the elderly woman already had uh, 911 on the phone. And all they were doing was pulling off really to a place that was safe. And then when they got there, they saw him and he confronted them and came down and it was just crazy what he did. I mean, it really yeah. was, it was certainly was a criminal act. But again, in Florida, if an employee commits a criminal act, but you can show that it in some way is in furtherance of the business of the employer, then the a jury has a right to uh, find guilt on the part of the employer. And that's what they did here. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, 
that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions that they can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. So were there, were there, um, did the headbutter have get criminal charges in this case? He did. Yes, okay. he did. He was arrested and ultimately uh, actually served time for oh, what he okay. did here. Yeah. Yeah. Got so it. Did, um, well, one well, of the ar- arguments I, I saw was that it, it sounded like from, the, from his employer, at least, he, he didn't lose his job and he continued to work there and, and didn't really get any sort of... Uh, any sort of punishment for headbutting somebody on their property? Uh, that that's right. It, it our our position was that they almost approved of it, right? Uh, and and uh, one of one of the more interesting thing that happened in the case was when I was cross examining the headbutter. My last question was this and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it memorized, but it was this. When I was a kid, uh, sometimes I'd be down playing baseball and I'd have three strikes, but my friends were all kind to me and they would let me have a do-over so they'd keep pitching to me until I hit it. And we used to have do-overs. So what I want to ask you, sir, is now that you know everything you do about this incident, if you had a do-over and you had it all to do over again, what would you do differently? He said, to tell you the truth, if I was confronted with the same situation, I'd headbutt him again. Oh, my gosh. And that, that kind of testimony, I think, really hurt him and it hurt the dealership when you consider that the owner – testified under oath that um, Sean was a trespasser, keeping in mind all he did was come on the property to help an elderly woman in distress. And to call somebody like that a trespasser, I I don't know who may have suggested that to this, uh, the dealership owner, but whoever gave him that idea gave him bad advice. Yeah. What, um, for purposes of, of, um, like I, I know in Georgia, especially for in terms of thinking about like negligent hiring or negligent retention, we'd be thinking about if there was anything about the the headbutter that the employer should have been on notice about or knew about, about as far as you know violent propensities or other stuff. Did you did you all have to show anything like that? Did you have any evidence of that? Well, we we did not have to show that. All we had to show is that he was doing something in furtherance of the business of the employer. 
Uh, and when we actually looked, in, we did look into his background to see if there was anything like that. And there were some minor things that showed he had uh, a bit of a temper, mm-hmm. but, but there was nothing major that would have prevented somebody from actually hiring hiring him in the first place. Right. Um, yeah. So gotcha. that's what we uh, dealt with. And uh, another uh, really fascinating part of the case that I thought, I tried this case with two other lawyers, Douglas Beam in Melbourne and Liz Zweibel over in St. Petersburg. And one day we're sitting around uh, as we are thinking about the trial. It was still a few months away. And Liz makes the comment, because we had done mock trials. We always do mock trials, and we did several mock trials for this case. Liz says, you know, guys, it feels to me like this is a wrongful death case. And I said, tell me what you mean. She goes, well, we have one human being. He is headbutted, then he goes down, his head hits the concrete, and when he comes out of it after all kinds of medical care and treatment, he's really a different person. So as a practical matter, uh, the wife lost her husband, and the kids lost the dad that they have, and a whole new husband and dad shows up after this. Right. So with that, we start talking about that. And our trial consultant, Dr. Harvey Moore, who has his, uh, he's a PhD in sociology, but we work with Dr. Moore in all of these mock trials and litigation prep, trial prep. He suggests we should hire a grief and bereavement expert. And a grief and bereavement expert, up until that point in time, had been used exclusively in wrongful death cases only. And I had never heard of using a grief and bereavement expert in an injury case, yeah. but that's what we did. And basically he testified, uh, his name was Harold Lindy, psychologist. Dr. Lindy testified that as a practical matter, the husband, the father died, a new person emerged. I felt that testimony was exceedingly persuasive in terms of the jury understanding the the significance of the damage done to Sean and the damage done to his family. And uh, it was a unique case because we were also permitted to pursue uh, claims for the children yeah, for their loss of parental consortium, which is very different. Yeah, I saw that, and I, I, I thought that was really interesting. This, uh, I love this idea of the grief and uh, bereavement expert. Um, you know, and, and as we know, a lot of this comes down to how uh, the, the clients do on the stand. Did you put both Sean and his wife on the stand? And I assume they must have done yep, we fantastic. Did. Um, we how, did. Did, how did they do? Well, you know, uh, first of all, I, I thought each one was a spectacular witness because the truth of what they had to say was so powerful. But when Sean testified, I specifically remember a moment when the defense lawyers were cross-examining him. And it, it, here now you've got a brain-injured man with dystonia, so his head is tilted over and he, he speaks in a, with a very unclear vibrato 
vibrating type voice. Uh, and he raises his voice, almost yelling at the defense lawyer saying, uh, you are not going to trick me. You tried to trick me in my deposition. You're not going to do it again. He gets mad at him. Mm -hmm. Right. And in looking at the jurors, you can see the jurors are pulling for Sean and they're upset with the defense lawyer. Right. And then when his wife, when she testified, uh, I just thought it was so powerful because she basically lost her husband. Yeah. A husband that was never going to return because that's what brain injury does. You, you, the, the person, you know, vanishes and well, it is a different human, human being that, that arrives afterwards. Well, and it looked like from, from the, I, I read a little bit of um, the defense's closing statement and it, closing argument, and it looked like they were kind of trying to explain, they were trying to explain why, but speaking of things that, you know, defense lawyers sort of do that you're like, why did you think that'd be a good idea? It sounded like they had sort of gone after the health of the marriage when they mm -hmm. were cross-examining the plaintiffs. Oh, they they did. I mean, one of the things they did was they they the defense tried to bring out that they had some marital difficulties before Sean was hurt. We did not run from that. We were not afraid of that. That's life. Things right. like that happen. But they went into marriage counseling and they did everything to keep their marriage together, to stay as a family with the kids, and they worked hard at it. And I think that totally backfired on the right. defense because the jury fell in love with this family. Right. And they're in their poem for him. And, the, and when you start, you know, uh, getting on them for having problems, you know, before and after, I mean, everybody has problems in their marriage and uh, yeah, I just drag that. that out is such a risky thing on, on the defense. Oh, it was, it just totally backfired on them. It was just crazy for them to do it. It really was. Yeah. I, yeah. That's I, what I was shocked about that. I, I think that must've been part of what led to, it looked like you're, for the wife, you got a $10 million loss of consortium judgment. And then for the children, it was three and a half million. So $13.5 million yes. of loss of consortium. That's maybe the biggest loss of consortium uh, judgment I've ever heard of. So that's uh, obviously fantastic work. And obviously, uh, the jury uh, really understood those claims. Well, look, I, I just think we had wonderful clients with a powerful story to tell. And, uh, I, I can't say enough about Liz Weibel, Doug Beam, and Dr. Harvey Moore, and all of the work and effort that they did in in making this all all come together. It was uh, it was one of those types of trials where, as I say, the stars aligned. Yeah, John, <laughs> I, you, I don't know how else to put it. Did you? Um, I, I wanted to ask you this earlier, but I, I it it's such a it was such a you know great idea to use it, the a grief and bereavement expert, but what kind of, you know, did you have motions and stuff pre-trial where uh, defense oh, was yeah. trying? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they did. They, they tried to, uh, I mean, they, bef before I got in the case, they had not only moved for summary judgment, but they had filed motions for sanctions and they, they were just on a, a run of trying to destroy the case. And, yeah. uh, uh, my dear friend, Doug Beam called and said, will you come into the case? And I said, it will be an honor. So we talked and 
ask Liz Weibel to join us. She's just tremendous in the courtroom so that the three of us could try it together. But they had all sorts of motions to exclude evidence, and one of them was to keep out the testimony of the grief and bereavement expert, and the judge denied that motion and, of course, allowed him to testify. Right. And what a great ruling because, I mean, as you were saying, if you've known, you know, either through, um, you know, personal injury cases or through somebody in your family, if you've known somebody that's had a traumatic brain injury and what that can do to, you know, their, their, the way their life, but also their personality, how it really can feel like a different person, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's such a smart way to handle it because it's so hard for people to understand what that can be like. Yeah. And it's, it, it changes everything, including the entirety of the dynamics of the family. I remember one of the sons, I put him on the stand and uh, he was all ready to go. He was ready, prepared, and uh, just just a sweetheart of a young man. He was in college. We had him come home from college so that he could testify. And I said, would you please introduce yourself to the jury? And he very confidently and uh, with just the, the, a great smile looked over at the jurors and said his name. And then he started just crying. Oh. We, we hadn't yeah. even gotten to the any of the questions yet. Yeah. And, and jurors were crying and they understood. I, I felt if, if not by then, they certainly understood then what it means to have your dad taken away from you. And then a a new person in life emerges and you're never going to have that same dad back. Yeah. 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 I, I, um, not, I didn't try the same case, but I tried a similar case where the, uh, husband had suffered a severe injury and uh, they had had he and his wife had had five children and um i you know basically said that she went from being part of a team caring for this five for five children to now a single mom of six children um you know because uh, oh yeah wow i love that yeah Uh, i mean that's just so powerful and it rings so true because that's what happens in these brain injury cases it really is so I noticed the verdict is all compensatory damages from what I can tell. Was there a punitive damages claim or did you all make a decision to not pursue that? Or how, how did that, how did that work out? Well, we made a decision to not pursue it for this reason. Um, although I did feel as though we could get punitive damages against the head butter, he had nothing. Right. So I did not want to just get a big verdict in order to, as they say, just have a press conference and say, oh, wow, we got a big verdict. And then we decided that the the conduct on the part of the dealership was, was not willful, wanton uh, type of conduct under these circumstances. Um, and therefore, we decided to forego any claim for punitive or exemplary damages. Yeah, well, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I I did notice that one of the things that your one of your themes that I saw was this culture of arrogance, and I thought, you know, in addition to the fact that they called him a trespasser and that he said he would headbutt him again, was that once the employee, some of the co-employees had seen um, your client get knocked unconscious, they went in and told their supervisor, 
And he basically said, well, I'm just going to have to hear both sides of the story and did nothing to help Mr. Adams. Is that right? Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It's really unfortunate. You know, backing up just a minute, there there was another aspect of the trial that I thought was really interesting. Whenever you have a brain injury case, you're always hopeful that there are some witnesses who can provide testimony about the existence of a brain injury, but testimony that is non-medical. Right. After Sean was hurt, the police were called to the scene. And the first police officer on the scene testified that when he got to the scene, he saw Sean, he didn't know who he was at the time, but he saw um, him sitting over on a curb a little ways away from where all the commotion was. And he had his head in his hands and was not moving. When he learned the identity of Sean and that he was the one who was headbutted and hit the concrete, he went over to talk to him and he made this comment. He said, uh, oh man, as soon as he looked up at me, I knew I was looking at somebody who had his bell rung. Mm. That was his phrase, who had his bell rung. The defense moved in limine to exclude that trying to say that that required some kind of an expert opinion. I said to the judge, I believe I could lay a foundation to show that this witness is qualified to make that observation. So I asked the police officer, did you play sports in high school? Yes. Which sports? And he named the sports and it included football. I said, did you play Uh, sports after that. Yes, I did. Were you in the military? Yes, I was. And we walked him through that. And now you're a police officer. Yes. And so we went through his history of seeing people knocked unconscious, punched out, kicked where they're seeing stars, a, a, a whole series of things. But the ultimate question was, when you say you saw someone with his bell rung, have you seen that before? He goes, oh, yes, sir. Many dozens of times. Right, and right. The judge then said he can testify. <laughs> yeah. And the judge let him testify about it. Um, so I thought that was a very important witness in the in the in considering the entirety of the evidence in the case. Well, and yeah. especially since they were challenging your causation on your on your brain injury, saying that he, that yes. he they were arguing he wasn't brain injured at all or not as bad as at least you were claiming. They were. They were. Uh, ultimately, they conceded by the time of summation that he did have a concussion, but their t- their experts said it resolved within six months. But up to trial, they wouldn't even concede that really. And what we were trying to say, and they were saying things like, look, he, the police officer said, let's have an ambulance take you to the emergency room. He refused that, said, no, I just want to go home. And because there was a delay in treatment, they were trying to say it wasn't as bad as we were saying. And of course we were saying, and that's part of what happens when you're brain injured. Right. You don't think straight. You don't act right. You don't use the correct judgment. You don't have the same level of discretion in your mind when it comes to decision making. So uh, if ever you get hurt, 
and you have any form of a brain injury, the luckiest people are those who have others around them who can make the decisions. Right, right. I mean, it's so it's starting to change now with the NFL and everything else as far as people understanding yes. the symptoms that you can have with a brain injury. But, um, you know, in a lot of these cases, and for many years, that was something that the average person did not know, these sort of yeah. subtleties and symptoms that you wouldn't expect from an injury like this. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it, it's it's amazing what is happening because of the NFL cases. But right. so many people have been watching TV where you see someone who is, uh, it appears as though they've been knocked out. 30 seconds later, they're walking them to the sidelines. Three minutes later, they're back in the game. Well, that's the way it was years ago. Now, they're not coming back in the game uh, because the the staff... Uh, medical staff, training staff have a much greater understanding of what brain injury and what concussions are all about. And frankly, I think the movie Concussion mm -hmm. uh, really helped a lot because a lot of people saw that movie and it made them have a better um, understanding of what concussions can do to people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's scary. And I mean, it's it's such a scary such a scary injury. Obviously, in this case, it was it's it's devastating what it did to this man. And then you back up and you just think that all of this happened to him because he was just trying to help somebody. I mean, it's awful. Right. No. Oh, I know. It was such a shame. Such a shame. So uh, one of the other injuries that you mentioned and we haven't talked about much is this uh, condition of dystonia. Can you talk a little bit about dystonia and then... Um, what uh, it sounds like the defense was trying to say that that was caused by something entirely different. Yeah, they they were trying to say it had nothing to do with this, but this dystonia is basically a movement disorder. Um, the best way for me to, to describe it for our purposes today is if you see someone, uh, let's say with his or her neck cocked to the left or right rather severely, and the neck is shaking, it looks like they have Parkinson's disease, like their neck never, the head never stops moving. That's the way it looks with someone who has this type of dystonia. And dystonia is, uh, can be caused by this type of a traumatic event. He, of course, had zero signs of this, no symptoms, no prior tests or anything until this incident happened. And then the dystonia grew as a result of this injury. And he had um, various doctors who testified about that. The only doctor the defense produced who said um, as an expert that the dystonia had nothing to do with this was a doctor. I hope you're sitting down again <laughs> <laughs> because here's what they did. They, they, had a doctor where they fill out expert witness interrogatories telling us the doctor's opinions, including things like there's no brain injury, things like there's no neck injury, there's no dystonia caused by this, etc. And yet it was not until several weeks later 
when they first send the records oh, to this expert. Gosh. So what they did was they, they revealed the details of his opinions. They name his name and they say, Dr. So-and-so will say as follows. And that became, uh, as you can imagine, a very um, critical item when I yeah. cross-examined him wow. was how could such a thing happen? And that, by the way, I, I don't blame the expert for that. I blame the lawyers who are doing that. Absolutely. Right. Yep. Oh, yep. my gosh. You can't do that. You can't I mean, do I'm, that. I'm surprised you still put that expert up. I mean, knowing that they're going to, you know, get subject I know. to examination like that. I was stunned that they did it because um, that's one of those courtroom blessed moments that <laughs> yeah. happen right. where you say, I can't believe the other side did this. But, hey, they did. Right. Right. Well, speaking of those, um, those kind of gifts that you get sometimes we didn't, we didn't have the whole, um, transcript from your trial, but we did read the closing arguments and I saw some interesting objections from defense counsel. And I was just wondering if that kind of stuff was going on the, the whole time, the whole, the whole week at trial. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we were in trial for, um, two or two and a half weeks with them on the case. And, there were objections flying all the time. I'm one of those lawyers who rarely objects. I'm, I can, right. if I'm in a two week trial, I'm, I might object five times in two weeks. And yet I've been in similar trials where opposing counsel will make 300 objections in two weeks. Wow. Right. Right. Well, and I saw the one that was, um, I, you know, to be fair, it was really just, it's one of the ones that stuck out to me as just being so silly was, was during your closing argument where you briefly reference a, um, a sign you had seen at Camp Lejeune about, uh, it's, it's, Oh, when I was in the Marine Corps. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. And they're like yeah. objecting, interjecting personal life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I only I mentioned it like, once. I was just <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. oh, come on. It was so... It, I mean, it was about the the message of the sign, which what, so it's right. there's never a wrong time to do the right thing or or something like that. Right, right. And, and as we all know, that whenever you object like that, all that does is highlight what Makes you just you, said, which right. is you know the fact you were in the Marines. So he, if if it had slipped by him before, now this the defense lawyer made sure they knew it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I I just I don't understand most objections being made in trials. They're just silly and just such a waste. It's almost like, um, you know, when they, when like leading questions, uh, in most trials, good lawyers use almost exclusively <laughs> leading questions. Yeah. And the reason is you're trying to get to the point faster. Right. And once with, with certain witnesses, there's a, a keen understanding you really should not lead them. And if there's an objection, it'll be sustained. So if it's an important fact witness um, who's explaining who has a red light or whether or not the doctor accused of malpractice did or did not say something, I understand that. But when you're calling experts uh, and you say things like, and then you did a residency, yes. And a residency is as follows. And it's fine to lead and most lawyers and judges say okay, but they were even 
objecting all oh, the time to leading wow. questions. And oh it got to God. a point where the judge said, no, I'm, I'm going to let him lead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, in the jury, you know, for lawyers, you kind of at least understand the legal basis for an objection or whatever, even if, even if as a practical matter, it's kind of not the best decision. But for, for jurors, it just looks like whining. They yeah. just think it looks like oh, it whining. Does. It, 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 it looks does. like that whatever you're saying must be really important because the other side doesn't want you to hear it. <laughs> it really doesn't want you to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, an, another thing that uh, is probably important to know in this case, and I don't know if you can do it in Georgia, but in Florida, we are permitted to discuss not just damages in voir dire, but we are permitted by most judges anyway, to discuss specific numbers. And in this case, we had made a decision after the mock trials to go to a specific number. And the specific number, and I'll give you the question because this is a memorized question that I use in trials, but at one point in voir dire, uh, I said the following. At the close of the evidence, we may ask you for a verdict in an amount not to exceed $40 million. When you hear that number, are any of you saying in your own mind, I don't care what the evidence is. I will never go there. Not me. No way. Not going to happen. Right. May I see a show of hands of anybody who feels that way? And what happens is, um, you're trying to ask jurors when a certain number is sought, are any of you going to say, regardless of what the evidence is, I will never go there. So even if I believe that the evidence warrants a $40 million verdict, I'll never vote for that. Uh, Somewhat like in death penalty cases, prosecutors are asked, are, are able to ask the question, uh, if the evidence demonstrates that the death penalty is warranted in this situation, do any of you feel, I don't care what the evidence is, I'll never vote for the death penalty. And of course, there are a lot of people who feel that way. So in Florida, what we do, um, we ask for a showing of hands, and then I'll follow up by asking a few of those jurors, tell me how you feel about that. And then sometimes they'll say, Uh, I really don't care what the evidence is. I would never award that kind of a verdict. And then we make a challenge for cause. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. 
They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Right. Yeah. You know, we, it, it's really up to the, the uh, judge's discretion uh, up here and it depends on which judge you have. Some of them are okay with it. Some of them uh, don't like it at all. Uh, but usually what I try to do is talk in terms of, you know, other verdicts uh, that they've heard about out there in certain numbers and just say, did anybody right. think that, you know, that number was just ridiculous. There's no, right. mean, you should never give that amount of money. Oh yeah. Well, my experience is ju- judges work very, very hard when it comes to voir dire. Yeah. They, they they struggle with it. The lawyers struggle with it. Jurors struggle. Everybody struggles with voir dire. But it is by far, in my view, the most important part of the trial. Right. And you can't exercise challenges for cause unless you've been given the time to develop these concepts and bring them out so that you understand jurors feelings. And then once all the challenges for cause are done, you've got to be able to intelligently uh, exercise the peremptory challenges, which you can't do unless you have all of the information that you developed during the challenge for cause part of it all. And it's, it really is hard work. I, I have found this when I'm in trial, the days that I am more exhausted than any other days are the days that I am picking a jury. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, it, it takes more energy, more thought, more concern, more worry, more stress, anxiety, any words you want to use, but yeah. it's tough. And yet by far voir dire is my favorite part of the case. Right, I, right. I so enjoy it because you get a chance to, be there face to face, eye to eye with the jurors and chat with them about issues. So in this case, was there, uh, this is Brevard County. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what the demographic makeup is there, but was there a, a particular type of uh, juror you were looking for or, or one that you wanted to make sure you didn't have on there? Well, we we knew going in that Brevard County is a very conservative area. Uh, heavy Republican, they vote Republican in all elections, both on the local level, on the state level, and on the national level. However, Dr. Moore has taught me over the years that you get the greatest verdicts from conservative jurors, Mm -hmm. so long as you effectively communicate the wrongdoing to them. And when conservative jurors believe that a wrong has been committed, they are the best jurors and they will spank a defendant. <laughs> and that's what I have found all over the country. Right, right. Um, well, that's fantastic. Did you, after the trial, did you get a chance to talk to the jurors? Did they let you do that down in Florida? Uh, we did. Yeah. Our rule is you, you cannot approach jurors and talk to them unless they approach you and say they're willing to talk to you. 
And we did um, not only the night of the verdict, but also um, in the, I want to say maybe the two or three weeks later, there were three or four of the jurors who contacted us to talk about the case. They, they uh, one called me, but there were actually three that ended up talking to Doug Beam. And we got, you know, a lot of feedback about the case. Good was, feedback. Was there anything that they thought was particularly effective or, or not as effective as maybe you thought it was? Well, the one thing is they loved the family. And they did talk about how the, they let us know that the pre-incident marital difficulties were no problem to them at all. And they were angry with the defendants for even bringing it up. That was one thing. Another thing, though, was it was like universal that when the owner called Sean a trespasser, yeah. they became incensed and just felt strongly in favor of Sean and his family from that point forward. Um, spe speaking of the jurors, I, I have a question just because I feel like of the trials that I've been involved in, they've almost all been like six trials. I mean, six day trials, including jury selection. And so we've always, right. we've always right. struggled on that Friday <clears throat> with what to do with that last day. That's kind of out there. Were you, were you worried at all going into a Saturday that the jury was, was, uh, going to be mad at you going to hold it against you? Well, the, the answer is yes, that is a concern. But my big concern was that I felt they would, they would just, um, uh, be out of control angry if we went into the next week. Okay. Right. Because yeah. now, because a Saturday I thought, you know, I'd, I'd rather them deal with a little bit of anger over losing a free day than cutting into the next week because all but two of our jurors had jobs. They had things to do. One was getting ready to go on a big vacation and I'm right. going, Oh my God, we got to get this done. So, um, <laughs> And sense. I told the judge, I'll never forget this. I said, judge, if we start at eight o'clock Saturday morning, we can have summations done and likely a verdict maybe by noon or one o'clock. Well, everybody shows up at eight o'clock. By one o'clock, we're still fighting over the verdict form and jury instructions. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. And, um, we we had two lawyers on our team that were assigned to do that. Actually, uh, not the lawyers who were trying the case, but trial support lawyers who were with us. And they were they said it was like pulling teeth because they they just each side had so many things that were so important in those jury instructions. Right. So that took forever. So we don't end up even starting summations until the afternoon. And then the jurors start to deliberate and we get a verdict. I, I want to say, I'm, I'm just thinking it was somewhere around eight o'clock that night. Wow. So we really, we really took up their Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so you started uh, deliberations at eight o'clock and you got the verdict that same night? No, 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 no. Oh. The, the deliberations, we, we were arguing jury instructions and verdict forms all morning. Right. So we ended up doing all the summations in the afternoon, and then the jury started deliberating by mid-afternoon. Ah, okay. They deliberated five or six hours and came back with a verdict at about 8 o'clock at night. Wow. Wow. Well, but they had, been, they had been there for about 12 hours, right? They had gotten there at, yes. at 8 a.m. that morning? Yes. Wow. Yep. 
long day. Wow. How, how did the judge uh, handle, uh, you know, getting them to come in on Saturday? Did he ask them or did he uh, just say, you know, we're coming in, we're going to do a Saturday? Um, a little bit of both. It was a hybrid approach. He said, look, I have worked hard to make sure that I don't have to bring you back here next week. Mm-hmm. But the only way I can do that is we're going to have to finish the case Saturday morning and maybe a little bit into Saturday afternoon. And I'm hoping everybody's good with that. Is everybody good with that? Right. And they all said yes. Okay. And so then we started and um, got the verdict Saturday night. Wow. wow that's, uh, that's great work. Um, well, I mean, this has uh, certainly been a, 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 a great case to talk about and, and uh, very interesting. Uh, I was thinking about it, you know, from a defense lawyer's standpoint, it sounds like there was a, several cringeworthy uh, things that happen at, at trial where you, you know, have the, the uh, assailant say he's going to headbutt him again and the, and the uh, um, owner say, you know, that he's a trespasser and then this expert who uh, already had his opinion before he even... Um, uh, before he even, you know, had the records. So it's just, uh, right. Right. Did you ever have a chance to talk to the defense lawyer about, uh, you know, what all happened during that trial or how, how did that go? Uh, the answer is not only no, <laughs> right. but a big no, they packed up, you know, we're, we're all hugging each other when the verdict came in and hugging the family. And then we turn around to, of course, walk over and shake hands with the defense lawyers and they and their entire entourage are gone from no the courtroom. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. No, no handshake. Wow. No, they didn't. They wow. Didn't. But wow. I, you know, I, I yeah. Hey, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's and right. I, yeah. Wow. So it was, uh, you know, really, uh, uh, you know, another interesting thing. I don't know if I mentioned this. The entire trial was televised. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. There is a uh, company called CVN, Courtroom yeah. View Network. Yeah. And they televise trials by live streaming them through the internet. And then they're archived. So you can go back and look at them at any time. And this was one of their trials. And I've oh, been awesome. fortunate enough to have a bunch of trials done on CVN. And uh, yeah, that's good. I, uh, I mean, CVN, I know that company uh, well, and I, you know, I've never gotten to the point of using them just because I'm such a superstitious person that I just feel like if I go in there and start videotaping myself, then I'm I somehow jinxing myself. <laughs> but, uh, uh, well, but, uh, you know, one, no, one of the interesting, company. yeah, well, one of the, one of the great things about CVN is it, 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 we would um, take a deposition of a witness. For example, this particular expert physician they called. We knew we were going to trial, or we felt certain we were, so we took the deposition with the understanding we need to depose him knowing we're going to go to trial. So we did that. The next step is we have mock trials, and we figure out how we're going to use his testimony in the mock trial. Then we go to trial, and we have his ta- his testimony actually videoed. So then three months later, I can go to a seminar where I'm teaching young lawyers how to prepare for defense examining physicians 
in deposition and trial. And oh, by the way, here's an example of what happened in the depot. Here's how we used it in the mock trial. Here's what actually happened in the real trial. And it becomes an extraordinary teaching tool. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. That is really fantastic. Well, and I feel like you, you know, I always wish I had the time to watch other people try a case because there's so much you can learn from watching that, especially when you don't have the stress right. of actually handling it yourself. But right. it's hard right. to be able to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's, uh, I, I just think it is uh, a, a great teaching tool. And another thing is when the, when you're in trial and CVN is videoing the case, you can go back at night and review things that actually happened in the courtroom that day. And you're not going to do that many times, but we did right. have a situation actually in another trial where I thought, did that actually happen? And we went back, it was a product liability case against Ford Motor Company. We looked at it that night on CVN, it did happen. So we were able to bring it to the attention of the judge and it helped us. Yeah, yeah that's, that's fantastic. I did, uh, I tried a case up in New Jersey a number of years ago where there, they, it was in their high tech courtroom and they had uh, six cameras set up throughout the courtroom. And that was actually the official transcript of the trial was the video. And so wow. they, it, it was all voice yeah. activated. So whoever, you know, wherever you were standing in the courtroom or wherever you were talking, that camera would come on. And then in closing, it, it was great in closing because we could actually pull up clips, you know, from the trial and say, you remember when, you know, Mr. Expert said this and then show him the clip. And wow. uh, it was really great. I, I, I did enjoy having it. Well, I mean, I, I just think it, it really helps out and, uh, it, it captures some very special things that, that happen, especially in a case like this one. Yeah. Well, John, this has been uh, just a fantastic discussion. Is there anything else about the case that, uh, that we haven't talked about that, um, that you think is important? No, not, not so much about the trial, but I, I will share one thing with you on a, on a personal note. Um, when I, I told you that one of the sons came home from college and, uh, was going to testify. And the night I was prepping him over at the hotel, he and his mom came by and I'm getting them all ready. And I, it was just a very emotional time. We're right in the middle of the trial. I'm talking to him. And, uh, for people who know me, anyone will tell you, I, I love music and I love to sing. And I told him, I said, I've got a feeling that the day after the verdict, which we're going to get a verdict in several days and when it's over, I think you're going to be thinking the words from this song. And I, I actually sang to uh, this young man and his mother one verse from the song uh, from the musical Oklahoma, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. <laughs> and don't you know the Sunday morning after the trial, he and his mother called me and they said, we've been singing. Oh, what a beautiful morning. And it oh, is that's... a beautiful morning. And all three of us were crying. Oh, so okay. it was, it was beautiful, but those are the special moments that you get in some cases. And, oh, yeah. and I, I have been both the spank or, 
and the spanky. <laughs> right, so, right, uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, I know what it's like to get up the morning after when it's a very tough trial and things did not go the way I would have wanted them to go. And that's tough too. But yeah. uh, that was uh, the Adams case was a great experience and just uh, I think about it often. Yeah. Well, it, Go ahead, Devon. Well, Steve, I was just going to say that I don't know if, oh, what a, a beautiful morning is public domain, but maybe maybe we can play <laughs> right. it in the podcast outro because that, <laughs> right, exactly. that's a nice story. I, I was going to say that I, I love to sing too, but everybody else tells me I have a terrible voice. I sing anyway. Singing's like dancing. You just, you do it. What do they say? Do it like nobody's looking. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, well, John, we've really appreciated the time. And, oh, and this has been great. I have really enjoyed this. This has been fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And let me just remind our uh, listeners that we've been talking to John Romano, uh, who's a senior partner at the Romano Law Group. And if you want to look up John, it's at www.romanolawgroup.com. Uh, again, John, thank you so much for everything. Yes. Thank you, John. Uh, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.